So, this morning we are looking at two realities, marriage and family. We are covering two commandments, the fourth commandment and the sixth commandment. Fourth commandment to honour your father and mother, um, therefore about family life and relationships. The sixth commandment to not commit adultery. So, um, just very briefly, what are we going to be talking about today? Um, so, what is marriage about? Well, the Catechism, quoting a number of church documents before it. Sorry, I can't write a, a U that doesn't look like an M. Talks about the, the munus, the, the mission of marriage. Um, that a husband and wife, they receive a mission in marriage, a mission from God, obviously, to, um, to procreate. Um, which means that marriage is about family, that these two realities go together. We're going to talk this morning with that about three ends of marriage. Um, procreation, union of the husband and wife. Um, and although the catechism doesn't make a big deal of it, I'm going to refer to it because it's part of the tradition, the remedy for concupiscence. Yes, that there's this desire in us, needs some satisfying. One of the remedies for that is marriage. That's the least glorious um, in the, the ranking there, but it is there. That is part of what marriage achieves. Um, and then we will also um, note the difference between natural family planning and contraception. And if we achieve all of that this morning, I'll be very happy. Um, so obviously I'm covering this in one lecture, so it's not going to be comprehensive. Um, as we're doing with, with lots of things in the catechism, we're giving an overview. Uh, the, the aim of this lecture, of this course, is to give you an overview. Um, if we have time, I'm also going to do a little bit on IVF. So basically, IVF is kind of the mirror image of contraception. Contraception, you have union without a child. IVF, you have a child without physical union. So the church is saying these two things actually go together. There's a word in the documents, in the catechism, inseparable. That the unitive and the procreative, they are inseparable. So obviously you can physically separate them, but the church means you can't morally separate them. That if you do separate them, you 
thought, the whole purpose, the meaning, the fulfillment of what the activity is itself about. So that basically is what we're going to be looking at today. Okay, so um, we turn to the lecture notes. So I see there on the first page, um, the heart of the Christian message in this regard is that marriage is ordered to family, family life. That actually these two aren't two random unconnected things, but actually they have an inherent ordering. That these two realities fit together. And so in my packaging, my summarizing of the catechism, we're going to do the fourth and the sixth commandment together and the fifth commandment next. Fourth commandment, I'm only going to summarize a few points on that as listed there. Uh, the fourth commandment is to honor your father and mother. So the Catechism notes that that commandment includes all kinds of other stuff. Um, so I so say it covers many other relationships. And Max, could you read that quotation for us? We should honor. Uh, this commandment covers many other relationships. We should honor our parents to whom we owe life and who have handed on to us the knowledge of God. We are obliged to honor and respect all those whom God has vested with his authority. So the Catechism is saying that that extends to all kinds of other authority figures in life and society. But also, um, children have duties to elders, but the elders have duties to children. The Catechism is saying actually this also is part of what is included in the fourth commandment. So Josh, could you read that bit for us? This commandment includes and presupposes the duties of parents, instructors, teachers, leaders, magistrates, those who govern, all who exercise authority over others or over a community of persons. And while we're not going to go through all of those relationships, um, just to note that the Catechism groups all of those together in its analysis there of the Fourth Commandment. We've already noted when we talked about um, the Catechism's vision of the human person, of society, of how, so start there with the quotation, that the family is the original cell of social life. So in society, what is it built on? Well, on one level, it's built on the dignity of the human person. But structurally, the original cell is the family. A man and a woman united in marriage, together with their children, form a family. This institution is prior to any recognition by public authority, which has an obligation to recognize it. It should be considered the normal reference point by which the different forms of family relationship are to be evaluated. So I'm old enough I can remember when, when politicians used the word family, they meant a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And sometime in the late 90s, that somehow shifted and politicians used the word family for any grouping that had a child in it, which is a subtle shift, but it suddenly changed what family values came to, to refer to. Um, but what the Catechism is saying is, is, no, actually, marriage is with the family, the, the prime reality, and that that's the reference point that you're going to compare any other type of family grouping to. 
Authority, stability, and a life of relationships within the family constitute the foundations for freedom, security, and fraternity within society. The family is the community in which, from childhood, one can learn moral values, begin to honour God, and make good use of freedom. Family life is an initiation into life and society. And thus, um, though I'm not quoting it here, that, that famous phrase from John Paul II, as goes the family, goes, so goes society. The, the family is what initiates us into all kinds of things in life, into society. If that goes wrong, society goes wrong. Sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, as we've noted repeatedly, the Ten Commandments each summarize a huge field of human activity. Well, in this commandment to not commit adultery is therefore a vision of marriage, a vision of sexuality. You can't refer to adultery without referring to these other realities that it implies. So, where in the Catechism do we find all that teaching here in the Sixth Commandment? And then it gets expressed in a different way in the Ninth Commandment about coveting your neighbour's wife in terms of desires and so forth. So we'll come back to, to that later. But what we're going to be looking at today um, is primarily the elaboration of the Sixth Commandment and human sexuality. So page two, um, I've put together a series of quotes from the catechism here, and I just want to kind of indicate the significance of those different block quotes. And I've started at the top of the page, the question of the purpose of sex and sexuality. And this obviously has to be the heart of our Christian mindset, that there is a creator, that he has made this world, um, and something like our, our bodies, our sex, our sexuality, it has a purpose. Um, we can't be happy if we ignore that purpose, if we try to use things ignoring that purpose. Let's say that the modern mindset views sex and sexuality variously, but about pleasure, a thing with no commitment, a reality with no inherent purpose, or sometimes something that's simply biological and physical. So what does the Catechism say in contrast? Well, it speaks in contrast of sex having a purpose. So it speaks of sex as being ordered to marriage, to conjugal love. So, you know, the word conjugal means married. So in all kinds of church documents, when you see that word, it's married, husband and wife, male, female. Um, so let's go through these quotes in terms of power. Do you mind reading that first one? Sexuality is ordered. Sexuality is ordered to the conjugal love of man and woman. In marriage, the physical intimacy of the spouses becomes a sign and pledge of spiritual communion. Marriage bonds between baptized persons are sanctified by the sacrament. Okay. And the key 
thing I want to draw your attention to is, as it says there, sexuality is ordered to. That sexuality isn't a random thing. It has a purpose. It has a function. It has a direction. What is it about? Well, we're built male and female to be different. We're built male and female, even at a physical level, looking to the other. Sexuality is about conjugal love. Next little subheading, sexual, sex is a personal, not just a biological thing. Uh, Nick, would you mind reading that quote for us? Sexuality, by means of which many women give themselves to one another through the acts which are proper and inclusive to spouses, is not something simply biological, but concerns the innermost being of the human person as such. It is realized in a truly human way only if it is an integral part of the love by which a man and woman commit themselves totally to one another until death. So there the catechism is quoting Familiaris Consortio, so that was a letter from John Paul II. Um, it's one of the letters that he articulated most clearly, his theology, the body as it's called. And so the catechism is picking up on a number of bits of terminology and expression that um, we find in his theology, the body. I say that sex is about self-giving. Now I note that that takes up the language of Vatican II, um, but also of John Paul II in particular. So Vatican II at Gaudium et Spes used this language, as we'll have to quote in a minute, that love is self-giving. So, so say that all love is self-gift. We give of our time, of our effort, of our activity, uh, so if I love my friend, well, that expresses itself in giving all kinds of things. But, you know, even the most mundane, like, like my time and my effort, my concern, giving of myself, something that is mine that I, I give in every act of love. Conjugal love, that love between a man and a woman in that union of marriage, is a unique loving whereby we give our body to the spouse. And the full self-gift gives our body exclusively, including fertility, to our spouse. So one of the reasons that sex before marriage is a problem is you are giving everything biologically you have to give to someone who isn't your spouse. And then for you aren't you no longer have it left to give uniquely to your spouse. You've given it already. Uh, Sam, can you read that block quote under sex fosters self-giving? The acts in marriage by which the intimate and chaste union of the spouses takes place are noble and honorable. The truly human performance of these acts fosters a self-giving may signify and enrich the spouses in joy and gratitude. Sexuality is a source of joy and pleasure. So if this was a course on sexuality, as I'm doing with the T3 and T4, um, we'd spend a bit of time on this point but that the acts themselves, the marital act, is ordered, is 
formed by the creator such that engaging in that act has the capacity to increase, to foster the love between the two. And there are many things a husband and wife can do together that make love between them, that grow love between them. That they can wash the dishes together in a way that bonds them, unites them. But that something is happening in, in sexual intercourse that isn't just about pleasure, but actually fosters the gift of self to the other. Now, what about ple pleasure? Um, so, um, Joe, can you read that quotation? The sex and pleasure is from God. The Creator Himself established that in the generative functions, spouses should experience pleasure and enjoyment in body and spirit. Therefore, the spouses do nothing evil in seeking this pleasure and enjoyment. They accept what the Creator has intended for them. At the same time, spouses should know how to keep themselves within the limits of just moderation. So that's a quote from Pius XII in the Catechism. And I note there a contrast. So American Puritanism, which you were lucky enough to get from, from the English, um, but also the heresy of Jansenism, um, they both treat pleasure with suspicion. So that I'm enjoying myself and I feel a little awkward about it. That God's happy when I'm miserable. You know, if, I'm, if, if life's tough, then God's happy. If I'm enjoying myself, then I'm somehow hoping God isn't looking. Um, or as the country western singer puts it, um, I hope the dear Lord ain't looking tonight. Um, that there is within our society, in American society, but even within some sections of the church, this long-running uh, heresy, Jansenism is a particular expression of it, whereby we're uncomfortable with pleasure. And yet pleasure comes from God. So I note there, um, kind of explaining this point with both Aristotle and St. Thomas. So first quoting, re referencing Aristotle. So in the Nicomachean Ethics, when Aristotle analyzes pleasure, he notes that every activity has a pleasure that completes it with different pleasures for different activities. Did we talk about this when we talked about virtue? So there's the pleasure of writing an assignment. You complete it, and in that completion, there's a type of intellectual pleasure you get. Um, that's very different from the pleasure that comes from eating a donut, where the completion of the eating brings a physical pleasure with it. But Aristotle is saying every different activity one of the ways you know it's achieved its goal, its end, its telos, is there's a pleasure that accompanies it. And you know, sex is no different. Um, and that isn't a problem. That's just how all of human activity is structured. The divine mind, and then I'm quoting St. Thomas, the divine mind, the author of nature, joins pleasures to natural operations. This is just how we function. Now the problem, as I then quote the catechism as indicating, is that sexual pleasure is morally disordered 
when sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. So Pius XII said, yes, the couple can be seeking pleasure, that's fine. But if they're seeking it somehow isolated from the activity it completes, then it all gets thrown out of whack. So Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics, he spends quite a bit of time noting that actually humans do this all the time. We, we try to grab the pleasure, but avoid the activity that goes with the pleasure. And as much as we do that, the whole thing just doesn't work. So we need to seek the pleasure as a part of the activity. Have we talked about the vomitorium? So the ancient Romans, they would feast until they felt sick and they had a vomitorium in the middle of the room in which they would go and bring it all back so that they could then stuff more down. Um, so completely separating the eating, the, the pleasure of the eating from the function of the eating, which is about nutrition and health. You keep those together and it, you get a, a healthy pleasure, a proper pleasure, a pleasure properly ordered and packaged. So pleasure in sex isn't a problem. Pleasure in sex belongs there. But it has to have its right context. So it can be isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. So that knowing the deeper purpose in sex is essential to engage with it properly. And this is a far cry from what most people are thinking about in our world today with respect to sex. Where sex is just a toy, sex is just a thing to enjoy as much as you want. isn't necessarily even a thing that's personal. Okay, let's pause a bit more, or look more specifically, the things that called the ends of marriage. Um, so this is page three now. Um, so I've, I've said here the ends of marriage. Um, you can pretty much say the ends of sexuality also, because these realities go hand in hand. So top of the page I've said the ends of marriage, union and procreation, morally inseparable. And the point I want you to pick up from this page is interpenetrating. So these two things aren't two unrelated things that the church kind of glues together. And what the church is saying is actually these two things are, their meaning is found right the way through each other. Okay, as noted previously, sex is ordered to marriage. But what is marriage itself ordered towards? What makes marriage different from other relationships. So hopefully you will have articulated this already beautifully in the uh, assignment. Um, 
considering the common good of marriage. Um, what is marriage? How is it different from my friendship with my friends? Well, the tradition, as I've said there, has spoken of three ends in marriage, with different contexts, ranking them differently. So if you read the Catechism of the Council of Trent, it will talk about three reasons, and we'll list these three in a slightly different order. Uh, the Code of Canon Law from 1917 would list procreation first. Um, but these three are always put together. Um, often the third of them, the remedy for concupiscence, isn't mentioned. That's only there because of the fall. Um, so what are the three ends? First, procreation and education of children. So it's not just about producing biologically children, but raising them, um, the education. The good of the spouses, their mutual help to each other, the marital bond, um, the unity. And as I've said, a remedy for concupiscence. So we look down the centuries, the saints, the scholars, they talk about these three realities. Um, frequently packaging them slightly differently, but it's always these three things. Now as a note there, the 20th century um, in theology had a shift of focus, and in philosophy too, that put a lot more focus on the human person, and with that, a personalist focus in marriage um, became more focused on. Um, so I said the 20th century focus has emphasized the value of the personal and unity. So Humanity Vitae in 1968 spoke of the procreative and unity meanings as inseparable, and it doesn't actually give a ranking just repeatedly says they're inseparable. So yes, you can physically separate them, but morally speaking, you can't separate them, or shouldn't separate them. Catechism likewise says, um, Joe, would you mind reading those two little quotes for us? The spouse's union achieves the twofold end of marriage. The good of the spouses themselves and the transmission of life. These two meanings or values of marriage cannot be separated without altering the couple's spiritual life and compromising the goods of marriage and the future of the family. Marriage and the family are ordered to the good of the spouses and to the procreation and education of children. So in both of those quotes in the Catechism, the Catechism isn't ranking procreation over union or union over procreation. It's wanted to make a slightly different point, that these two things have to go together, that they do go together. Um, why do they go together? Um, well, there's a chap called Perry Carhill, have you heard of him? <laughs> he, he wrote a book on the mystery of marriage, so I've got a little section there in which I'm summarising some of his thoughts on this point. Um, but how these two meanings, he says, mutually interpenetrate each other. So first, how union serves children. So the fact that you have a husband and wife united together, that serves the meaning of children. 
The bond of the couple serves the good of the offspring or potential offspring. Offspring need the stability, the security of a stable home. Offspring need the example of parents who love each other. So in that sense, these two realities, union and procreation, go together. That the, the union serves the procreation. But, and this in our modern society is probably the, the aspect most neglected, the reverse holds as well, that children serve union. That having a child together bonds a child together. That when they seek to have a child together, that bonds the couple by their yearning together for this common goal. That they want to have a child. They do all kinds of things together to have a child. Um, they, they plan together to have a child. They, that, this goal of a child bonds a couple together. So that Gaudium et Spes says that children contribute to the well-being of the parents themselves. We can elaborate that also in terms of a purifying process, in terms of children increase selfless love and thus purified love. Because the parents' individual needs have to be put before the needs of the child. You know, you, whenever you see a young couple with a, a new child, their first child, they um, have this brutal reality learning curve of, of everything is about the child. That their needs have to come second to the needs of the child. Well, that has the capacity to purify their love from selfishness. And that therefore, by purifying their love of selfishness, increases their capacity to love each other as husband and wife. Pekal goes on that a husband and wife know each other through their child. That the husband and wife reveal themselves to each other in new ways as a result of having a child. They're doing something new together, radically new together having a child and they come to know the other in a new way through this. And the husband and wife tend for each other in new ways as they tend to the needs of the offspring. So the point he's trying to make there is that these two realities, the unitive meaning and the procreative meaning, they each serve the other, they each are related to the other. That they're not, to repeat what I said earlier, they're not two random things glued together by the church. And then at the bottom of the page, um, I quote John Paul the Great saying that the unit of meaning is, in a certain sense, by means of the procreative the procreative meaning bonds the couple together. And without the procreative meaning, the couple are not truly bound together by the marital act. So sadly, we see this um, in divorce. So even when a couple separate, if they've got a child together, they're kind of, in a certain sense, remain united through the child. Each 
needing to relate to the child, seeking to relate to the child. Having a child together bonds two people together. It serves their union. And if you pluck that procreative dimension out of a relationship, you deprive it of what makes it most unitive, most permanent, most binding. simulation of this, would having more children serve to unify the marriage even stronger, or would that just be a new opportunity for them to kind of, I guess, reunite their love? What would you answer? Um, I kind of want to lean, lean towards more like the strengthening of the marriage. Um, I don't know, I, I come from a big family, but I guess there's also times where, you know, I guess it can be pretty stressful see where it's like it strengthens but it also can kind of distract from the husband and the wife just a constant focus on children um, yeah just to jump in it seems like the more kids you have the more you rely on the other person to help you out in the marriage right I think that's what Keith was saying is like you have to really cling to each other to get through like the difficult times and to provide for your family if you have the more, the more kids you have so it seems like the more family you have any other observations? And we're obviously all aware this is the very opposite of what most people out there are thinking now. That, that having a child is an inconvenience, having a child is a complication. If we choose to get married, well, a child would be an utterly separate question that wouldn't be related to us choosing to get married. No, we want to get married. Maybe we want to have children, maybe we don't. That, what's that got to do? We would just want to get married. Rather than say, actually, if you want to get married, what marriage is about, what truly unites it in a way that your friendship isn't united or some other relationship isn't united is this ordering towards children. Any other questions, observations, reflections? I think I have a similar question. Um, would a couple who maybe are married late in life is their marriage somehow not deeper than other marriages because they're not bound by a child? You're saying, is it not as deep, you mean? Right, but like, for instance, like, they don't have the child where they can, like, have a deeper bond. I think when you talk as a priest to couples that can't have a child, they're aware that they're lacking something. Um, their union nonetheless has this inherent dynamism towards a child. That's what a marriage is. Even though there are many examples of marriages where they never will be able to have a child for physical reasons or whatever. Um, but that is still the dynamism of what makes their relationship different 
from two friends, even if they both get married at the age of 70. The, the, the relationship they're entering into, that's what it's about, even though it's no longer going to be physically possible. So, if we're saying that marriage is a remedy for concupiscence, and for the celibate man, priests, were there, what would, would, would be, would be the remedy for concupiscence? You're looking for something, eh? It's not the only remedy. So, um, St. John Paul II talks about celibacy as a therapy for a disordered age. So my giving my sexuality uh, as a sacrificial offering to the Lord, cleaving to the Lord with an undivided heart in which I give to him not through my spouse, but directly give him everything. I become one of those 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Well, you're only free to follow the Lamb wherever he goes if you're free of the, the complications of a family. But that undivided love heals all of the disorders in our passions. So that's a different, use this word again in John Paul II, a therapy for the disordered loves of our current age. So marriage is, because of the fall, a remedy for concupiscence, but it's not the only remedy. In a sense, what's toughest is those that are single but not celibate. So in my celibacy, I have a gift. Um, in, in that commitment, in that giving of it to God, to strengthen me in that. The person who's single still has the graces of state, still has the graces from the Lord to be faithful to what their state is, but they somehow don't have the added bonus of the graces that come from that commitment and celibacy. the priesthood have you noticed or do you see the same thing of like having baptized children that you were giving birth to spiritual children that, have you noticed a parallel in your priesthood days? I'd say I, it's more that I feel that's what my priesthood is um, so you know we call the priest father because he is and that is my relationship to the adults as well, that I'm seeking that Christ be born in them, and that that is the, the pattern of all my, my activity as a priest. If I've been in a parish long enough, so my, the parish I was in long